So if you have any deep, dark secrets, keep them to yourself. Otherwise, they're going to be on the internet. Okay, well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all your many blessings. Today, we're thankful for the blessings of mothers and the gift that they are and the way that you use them to show us yourself, to teach us about you and your words and the things you would have us do. Encourage moms in their task, sustain them through the difficulties and the trials, uh, and encourage them in the promise of your word. We also give thanks for the gift of the helper, the Holy Spirit, who without this helper, we would not know you. We could not believe your words or recognize them as truth, but in your grace and mercy, you so generously pour out the Holy Spirit into us. So we thank you for that gift, and in that spirit, we ask that you bless our gathering as we delve into your word and seek to learn more about the traditions of the church that we have inherited, that they may be a blessing to us um, as we move forward into the future, serving you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So I'm just going to do a short review since it's been a month. Um, we read Psalm 1 and John 1 when we started the service of the Word section. And in Psalm chapter 1, the image for, for being in the Word is what? Do you remember? There's a couple of images used in Psalm 1. So one is a tree, and the tree is by what? Water, right? A stream of living water. And in that imagery, which is the word? The water, very good, right? The word is the stream of living water. And the image in Psalm 1 is that the person who is in the word is like a tree planted by a stream of living water. So the image there is with the word, life. Without the word, death. Um, and so the word is the source of this, this life that we have in Christ. Uh, and then in John 1, um, that's the famous tongue twister about, in the beginning was the word, with the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word said this, you're, right, you know that, you're familiar with that. And that's establishing that um, who is Jesus in, according to John 1? What is his title there? The word that did what? Became flesh. Very good. Right? So Jesus is the word that became flesh. And John 1 tells us that he was also the word present at the beginning. And the word was God and the word was with God. And by him all things were made and nothing that was made, um, nothing that was made was not made through this word. Right? And so that hops us back, of course, to Genesis chapter 1. And how were all things created? They were spoken into existence by this word. And now this word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Right? So it makes sense then that for Christians, and even before, the people of God are always gathered around what? His word, right? Um, and so I, I shared, I think, some stories last time about how if you ever wanted to shorten the service, those are not the places I would cut, right? Because then it starts to lose its purpose. We gather around the gifts of God, his word and his sacraments. The whole reason that there's a called and ordained office of the ministry is to bring those gifts to God's people. It isn't for me to stand up there and pontificate about my own insights about things. Right? It isn't even there to be nice and we all get together and we have a good time and we eat good food and we like being around each other. Now all those things happen and they're good. But that's not the reason we're here. The reason we're here is because God is here bringing his gifts. And the word is the, the root of all of that. Right? Um, and so that very same word that made things in, in creation is making new things in you and me every week. Through the word of God. Through this word made flesh in Jesus. And today we learned that how can we grasp onto that word? Because of another gift that we've been given, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it's so much nonsense. At least we think. And I'm sure many of you have somebody in your life that when you talk about this stuff, or they hear this stuff, they sort of scoff and think it's idiocy. Or voodoo, or magic, or whatever. And we're tempted in our, 
our sort of post-enlightenment world to buy into that a little bit, to be a, to be a little bit ashamed of that. Yeah, you know, we, we baptize, but I, let's not talk about all the weird stuff about that. Um, because we're wired and we grew up in a society and a culture that really raises up reason and logic and science and understanding according to ourselves. And so when we're, when we're interacting with God, by definition, we're going to be running into something that isn't something we can grasp fully according to ourselves and the normal things that we use like reason and logic and science. And so therefore, you combine that the lack of being able to understand things beyond our ability, plus thinking in our sin that we're the center of all things, and what do you get? Huh? Me instead of God. Me instead of God, right? So um, when something supernatural comes along that you can't categorize and you don't fully understand, it's not true. Can't be true. Well, why can't it be true? Well, I don't get it. We can't make sense of it. And because of our hubris and the way that we view truth, then we think if we can't understand it, therefore it isn't true. Right? Um, but the word comes along and teaches us something different. Because the word regularly tells us things, A, that we don't understand. And B, that we understand and wish weren't true. And C, things that we just don't even know what to do with. Right? And that's with the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, think about what we did last week at the baptism. Imagine that without faith. It just is silliness. You all got dressed up so I could dump water on a baby's head. Why did we do that? Was his head dirty? And if you explain it to somebody who doesn't believe, they may be polite and not look like look at you like you're crazy to your face, but they'll think it. Because you're saying that this baby just got a new and eternal life in Christ because some dude poured water on his head and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the proper response to that for the Christian is, well, yeah. Right? But we're afraid to say that because it sounds like craziness. Unless you have the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, and so you can see how all this stuff gets tied together. And where you would think over time, because we're going to look at the history of the service of the word today. If you don't hear that word regularly, what's going to happen? You'll forget it, right? You won't think about it. What else? Will they be more easily influenced by other sources of information? Has anybody played a Telephone Pictionary before? So it starts out, you get like a stack of cards, and somebody will draw a picture. So everybody has their own stack, they draw a picture, and then you take, you take that stack and you hand it to the person <coughs> next to you, and then they have to write the words about what they think the picture you drew is. Okay. And then it goes all the way around until you get your original set of papers back. Now, how many of those do you think actually say what the picture started out as? None. None of them, right? Because depending on how good of an artist you are, people probably have no idea what you're drawing, right? And maybe you're a great artist, but the person next to you isn't. And then by the time it gets back around to you, you may have started by drawing a Taco Bell. And then they're talking about some dog breed or something, right? I mean, it's, it's very fun because it's, it's sort of hilarious how easily over the course of that handoff, you end up in a totally different place, right? And so historically, this, this uh, gathering around the reading of God's word occurs at a time when, his, when God's people get scattered. So there was always a reading of God's word and a passing on of God's word in history, but it was an oral tradition. So it wasn't written down, so you could hand a book and somebody could read it. It was spoken, right? And it was passed down in, in faith communities, small faith communities, parents and children, the, the uh, religious leaders to the community of people. But then something changes. Um, the, the people of God get conquered and their city gets destroyed. In 586, 
The Babylonians come in and they defeat God's people. They destroy Jerusalem and then all the people of God get scattered. It's called the diaspora. You've probably heard that term before. And out of that comes the synagogue and the tradition of the synagogue because what needed to be preserved? The word, right? Because what was no longer happening? Sacrifices, the temple. All of the ritual that ordered the lives of God's people was no longer able to happen the way that it was supposed to. And so like with Telephone Pictionary, there's this great danger of losing that from one generation to the next. And God has big plans. Right? His plans aren't just for the people who are alive right now, but all the people that are to come. Right? When he gives his promise to Abraham, he says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, generation upon generation upon generation. So if we're going to do that, the word has to be preserved. Right? And so this sort of is born out of that idea. And so that's why that develops at this time. So synagogue worship develops to preserve the worship of the people of God in exile and to tell of God's mighty work for his people. So if you want to look at the handout that I gave you uh, for today, I'm going to read a little bit of that. So just uh, under the synagogue title there at the top of the first side. As discussed previously, synagogues developed during the Diaspora, the period when the Jews were scattered throughout the inhabited world and could not make a yearly pilgrimage to the Temple of Jerusalem for Passover. The Sabbath liturgy of the synagogue is different from the Temple liturgy because it can, contains no sacrifices. Somebody pointed that out. The synagogue liturgy centers rather around the reading of the word, interpretation of that word, the Shema, or Old Testament Creed, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, prayer based on that word, and the Psalms, the Old Testament hymns that accompany the themes of the word. The Sanctus from Isaiah 6 and Psalm 118 formed one of the earliest hymns. These services were very similar to our matins, vespers, morning, and evening prayer, and also helped shape the word structure in the service of Holy Communion. So they give us an outline here of what one of these would look like. So, you look at this, and does it seem alien to you or fairly familiar? Familiar, familiar right? What are some of the things that, that are familiar to you? Invocation. An invocation, right? Now, is their invocation a little different than ours? Bless the Lord who is to be blessed, right? Um, it's a little different than ours, but same idea is you're invoking the name of God, right? And at this point, baptism in the triune God is not around yet. And so you're calling the name of God in. So it becomes a gathering of his people and God's presence is there. All right. What else looks familiar? Readings of the what? Readings of the, Bible. the readings of the Bible, right? So they have the reading of the word down there. And the order here is Torah, the prophets, and the historical writings. Okay. Uh, which one of those would have been the most important reading? Torah. The Torah. Right? So, so the structure is similar, but we actually do it in reverse in our service. right? So they start with the Torah, and then the additional writings expound on what's taught in the Torah. Right? Um, and then you have the uh, Psalms in response. So songs in response to the gift of the word, the revelation of God. Um, and the reading of the word, like it really is sort of still the normal, it is the normal practice still in, in, in Christian churches all over the world. The reading of the word was done by a selected person. Uh, a male, one of the rabbis, would read um, the word of God. Um, and uh, how many of you guys have been to or know what, a, what goes on for a bar mitzvah? Can you describe the sort of formal ritual part of a bar mitzvah? Yep. Um, 
and then uh, they stand there, and it's a scroll that they kind of. And it's their first public reading (laughs) of God's Word. And it's read in Hebrew. And for my friends that went through it, um, I don't think that at that time, maybe they do it, I don't know, maybe they do it differently than than, than whenever I was a kid. But um, they didn't understand, like they didn't know the, the English. Like they didn't understand what they were reading. They spent years learning the Hebrew and how to read from that portion of the, yep. the, of the book, but um, they, they weren't taught the English. So it was like very like, ritualistic. So they didn't understand the meaning of they the Hebrew. They, they, no, but they knew the words really well, so they stopped wow. Yeah. Yeah, they, they practice a lot they practice before they a lot. do that. Yeah. You go, it's Sunday school instead of, yeah. So, so, the, so our sort of equivalent, which has really been blunted, let's say, was the sort of questioning and confirmation, was our similar thing, where you're investing a lot of time as one of the young people of the spiritual community to do something difficult that sort of marks you now as an, as an adult member of that community, right? Uh, and it's all centered around what? The word, right? Because that is the, that's the core of the community, the thing that binds it all together is the word. And so in order to become an active part of that community, that was that was the goal, right? You were in the word. You were you were raising that up, and so um, so similar structure to us, but we do it in reverse. And so Torah is the m- most important, the prophets, and then the historical writings, and those are usually expounding on what was read from the Torah, and then um, there would be an interpretation of the word, right? Which is which is what I do as well, uh, preaching and teaching uh, from the word. Um, that would be done by a rabbi, um, and then. Uh, what else do you recognize in there? Interpretation of the word, that's a sermon. Yeah, sermon. What else? Benediction. Benediction. Yeah, and it's even, uh, it could be even exactly the one that we use, the ironic benediction from number six. That's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Right? Um, the Sanctus, yeah. The Sanctus, right, from Isaiah 6, uh, which we sing when we do communion uh, on third Sundays here. Right, that's the, the Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, and then the Shema, which is a form of a, a creed, a statement of belief, right? So we obviously don't say the Shema anymore. We have, we have new creeds um, that have come through, through the history of the church, but it similar, serves a similar function, right? So you can see that if that was all we were doing in the church service... There's a lot of similarities here, right? So it, it's not a big stretch for us to understand that that's really where that part of our service comes from, right? So when we're engaging in the service of the word, we're engaging in a history that began even before Jesus was incarnate, right? And it's carried on to now. Now, obviously, it's, it's a, there's new changes because when Jesus comes into the picture, things change, right? Um, and so what we do is we have the Old Testament reading, and then there's usually a psalm, and then you have the epistle, and then there's usually the gradual, which we do sometimes on the third Sunday here. And then um, we usually sing something, an alleluia verse, right? And uh, you may have been to a church where they do the alleluia in verse, and while they're doing that, somebody's carrying the, the gospel, a big, big Bible out down into the, the middle of the sanctuary. That's called a gospel processional. Um, we haven't done that here yet. We may that might be something I I'll encourage us to try on like an Easter service or a Christmas Eve service. We used to do it um, Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think most places now that's what they do. They do it on on big uh, feast day Sundays um, to sort of elevate the place of the gospel, right? And that's what that does. It's it's setting it apart because as we talked about last time. The key part of the service, the word for us, is the words of Jesus, the gospel. Right? And even today, right, you would see, if you look at all those readings, the Old Testament, or in this case the Acts reading, and the First Peter reading, are all explicating the gospel. And then the sermon does the same. And so, even though the sermon occurs after and those occur before, everything is pointing to what? The word. It's pointing to the gospel. Right? Because as Christians, Torah is no longer the most significant word from God. 
the words of Jesus are the most significant word from God. Right? And so that, that's the highlight there. Okay. Uh, the reading of scripture was central to the worship in the synagogue. As observed from the above outline, the manner in which the Jews read the scripture is very similar to the way we read the scriptures. The major difference is that they began with the most important reading, uh, whereas you know, we go from there um, to we end with the most important. A selection from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. The Torah was the point of interpretation for the rest of the reading. That is, the prophetic reading interpreted the reading from the Torah and so on with the historical reading. And the rabbi used the important principle that scripture interprets scripture so that the prophets and other readings would serve as homilies on the Torah. Between each reading would be a time of meditation and reflection when they would chant psalms chosen according to the theme of the reading. At the end of the scripture reading, the rabbi or teacher would expound the scriptures in his homily called Midrash, which means interpretation. He would teach about what God has just said to the people through his word. So that's pretty much what we did today. Right? We just have some new words from God. Okay? It only makes sense if there's so much similarity. Because, you know, you know our, our religion is based on their religion. You know, two-thirds of our Bible is theirs. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and right, so um, Jesus makes it clear when he comes that he's not beginning something anew, but he's fulfilling what has already been set, set forward, right? Um, and so you can, you can look at this and you can begin to see how the modern Christian church, particularly in the West, has kind of lost the thread on what worship is really about. For the vast majority of the history of the Christian church and even back to the synagogues, there's been a focus on what God is saying and doing. And in recent times, that focus has shifted from that to what we're saying and doing. Now, some of that was started by the Reformation because prior to the Reformation, you didn't say and do much at all as somebody sitting in the pew, which also wasn't good. Because while it isn't about what you're saying and doing, you are an active participant in worship. But what role do you play? Huh? Yeah, you're the recipient, right? So God is the first mover and we're the receiver. And then we move in response to the reception, which is why most of what we do is thanksgiving, praise, and prayer, right? Which is essentially us saying, wow, because God, you have done this for me. I'm so thankful and grateful for this gift that you've given me, right? And that's the rhythm of our worship. And it's really uh, kind of cool today in the gospel reading that's, that's highlighted, right? The idea that the answer to the question, why do you believe in Jesus, is, well, he gave me the Holy Spirit so that I can believe, is, is illustrative of this fact, right? That God is coming to us first, and then we respond. And we can't respond until he does, because we don't even have the stuff to respond until he comes to us. And so our worship service reflects that truth, right? What's one of the dangers that maybe you've, you've seen in worship or experienced when we lose that thread. Making up our own stuff. Making up our own stuff, right? So we get away from what we're about is, is really figuring out what the word is saying. And pastors fall prey to this too. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I will do sermon series, but I'm not going to do them often. Because sermon series are a little too controlled by the pastor in the direction that they're going to go and the theme that they're addressing. And then what is the pastor doing after a while if that becomes his focus all the time? He's controlling the word, which is not his job. Right? His job is actually to be a servant of the word, if you've heard that phrase before, which means that I'm bound by what the text says as to what I can talk about. And so I actually, and I was preparing for my sermon not this week but last week, it brought up like a, a cultural um, sort of clashing point between the faith, but it wasn't really in the text. And so I had to go back and, and do something different because what was happening there is I saw something in the text that reminded me of something that I wanted to talk about, but it wasn't really there. I can't do that, right? That's, that's not an authority I have in the office that I hold. The authority I have in the office I hold is to expound what the word says not what i wish it would say or what i would hope it would say or what what i think it reminds me of right um yeah dave i was gonna say maybe one of the other dangers is that uh our focus turns to being 
so focused on participation that if the participation isn't right or pleasing to those who are engaging in worship, that the worship isn't good as yeah. opposed to, you know. Yeah, because if you're in that, if you're stuck in that mode, who are you thinking about? Yourself. Yourself. And so by definition, then, who are you not thinking about? God, right? And the whole purpose of coming to church is because he wants to give you things, right? So it's all about him and not about you, right? Um, and that's a joy, by the way, right? That's, the, that's where the real joy lives, right? Because when you focus on him, then you begin to really see and understand the things that he's doing. And those are the things that bring you joy, not, you know, oh, I really liked this song. Well, that's great. That's fine. That's good that that happened. But then if you're learning a new song that you don't really know and you're like, eh, I'm not a big fan of that, that's okay. You can, you can live through all of that just fine and still rest in the joy because you know that's not really what it's about. I can learn that song. I can have my preference. But that's not why I'm here. And the reason that I highlight that a lot in the way that I talk about worship is who's to say what things are going to look like 10 years from now here at Ascension? And I don't want the congregation to be tying its foundation and its practice to things that are not permanent and not from God. Right? And it's easy and subtle the way that that can shift. Right? Um, so at my previous church, we had two Sunday services every week, and one was the traditionally styled and the other was contemporary style, which is fine. It's okay to have preference. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it becomes wrong is, let's say, um, a, a pandemic happens, and you can only have one service. And because it's not the style you would like, you refuse to go. Then it becomes wrong because the service is no longer about what God is bringing to you and doing for you. It's about what you would like. Or think about when you move to a new place and you're looking for a church. What, what are we tempted and often do make the primary question that we ask ourselves as we're looking for a church? What do I get out of it? Right? Do I fit here? Which is just a polite way of saying the same thing, right? You're not interested in being changed. You're not interested in, like, something moving you. You're interested in what I can get out of it. What do I like about it? Do I feel like I belong here, right? And most of the, sometimes those questions aren't bad to ask, but it depends on what criteria you're using, right? Um, because at its base level, at the core of the Christian faith is the understanding that I'm not very... I'm not a good person, so there are aspects of me that really shouldn't be comfortable here. Right? If I go to a church and the only thing I ever hear is stuff that makes me happy, something's missing. Right? That would make my job way easier. Because <laughs> I have a bunch of really difficult and awkward conversations I would never have to have. But unfortunately I do, because I'm a servant to the word. Right? And that and that's where you know we're gathering here. So um so you can see how this, this carries over from the synagogue. And there are numerous mentions in the Old Testament where what is the job of the people of God going into the future? They have one primary task. Preaching the word. Preaching the word. Okay, you can say it that way, but it's a little bit more organic than that, right? Because when we say preach, you imagine somebody standing up and talking to a group of people. Right. Sharing, sharing, sharing the word. Sharing with who? The world. Okay. Um, that wasn't a huge part of the goal in the Old Testament. Huh? Following the word. Okay. So living it out. Okay. For the benefit of whom? The next generation. The next generation. The next generation. So like in, in Joshua, in the early part of Joshua, God commands the people to not intermarry with the, the people in the land of Canaan. Why did he say that? Because he doesn't like them? Different beliefs. Different beliefs, right? And he knows what's still true today, that if you go into a marriage thinking that you're going to convince somebody to believe something they don't yet believe, not, marriage, doesn't, marriage isn't an evangelism tool. It's not its purpose, right? And often the opposite happens. Because it's easier to sort of not do something than it is to do something. Um, and so 
that's like one of the few requirements that God gives in, in the Bible for when you're considering marriage that you should really pay attention to is to not be unequally yoked in this case, which refers to faith. Right? And do the people of God listen? No. They don't. And what happens? In two generations, the children, two generations from Moses, don't know anything about Exodus and the deliverance of God. Yep, grandkids. Right. Um, and at first, you're like, wow, that's really, that, that happened way faster than I would have thought. But then if you think about your own life, you're like, eh, actually, no, that's pretty believable. Right? Because it happens pretty quickly. Uh, and, and usually it begins, I just, I just got finished reading the screw tape letters, so I'm thinking about the, the subtle ways in which we get, we get tilted off track. And it usually begins with making worship about myself, even in a noble sense, right? about the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm, the way I'm honoring God. Right? Uh, and you can see this in some of the worship songs you may hear on the radio. Um, they're talking about, not about what God is doing for them, and why they're grateful for it, but they're talking about how much they worship God and how much they love God. Now, that has its place, but it has to be in the context of a response to what God is first doing. Otherwise, if you're just making it about what you're doing, it does the, the rhythm and the, the reality of our relationship with God doesn't make sense after a while. Right? Because is, is what I'm, like if you think about it, it's like is what I'm singing about and worshiping my, you're like I'm, I'm singing about my worship of God. It's a weird thing, right? Um, and, I, and I know when people do that a lot, I don't think they're really thinking about that. They're not, they're not because they wouldn't say to you like, oh, I'm the best worshiper at this church. <laughs> right? Of course, they wouldn't say that because that sounds weird. But the subtle, the subtle reality and the practicality of their faith life, it happens. And it's, that, that happens slowly and slowly, right? And eventually you end up in a place where Worship becomes a work that you do, and works that we do inevitably crush us when they're not rooted in the gospel. Whether that's a tragedy in your life or just the slow, dull grind of going to church and not seeing anything spectacular. And then eventually that leads to, oh, maybe I don't need to go every Sunday. I've heard all this stuff before. And I can sing and praise with my friends and go to Bible class or study you know, on my own. And then the reality is practically what ends up happening. You just stop doing all that stuff, right? And then if you have kids, you pass your religion on to them, right? Your practice of religion, which at this point is nothing, right? And then you disguise it in the in the, the phrases of, well, I don't want to, I don't want to influence their choices about the future. I want them to figure things out for themselves. Right. And then here we are, right? And that doesn't take very long. Two generations, right? So it turns out the word's pretty important because it turns out that having like a, a certain and sure source of truth makes a big difference. And a lot of times for us, because we're human beings and we're only thinking about really things within our own lifetime, we think we can get away with like, well, I don't really need to do that because I know, right? But what about your kids? But what about their kids? Right? As I said, God has grand plans that involve many, many generations. So if that's going to work, what has to be able to be done? The truth has to be able to be passed on. Right? And, that's, and that's what he gives in the Old Testament. So there's numerous passages. Deuteronomy 6 is a great one where the Shema is from. Right after the Shema, what does he say? Who does he talk to? Let's turn to that in our Bibles. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're looking at verse 4. Somebody want to read verse 4 for us? Vicki, go ahead. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right. So that is the Shema of Israel. That's their creed. Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And again, here, if you're looking in your English translation, Lord is in all caps, which means that it's what? It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. If it's just the capital L, it's a title. If it's all caps, it's the proper name of God, Yahweh. 
right? So here, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Okay. Um, and then, if we look at the very next verse, I'm going to read that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay. And then verse 6. Maggie? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, so live this way. The words that I'm giving you are going to be on your heart. Now verse 7. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Okay, so who is he talking to now? Parents. And what task does he give them? Teach your children. What are they teaching them? These words that I have given to you. These words that I have commanded you. Right? So right after he tells you that you make the big confession of the people of God with the Shema, then these words are on your heart. Live this way. And then teach them to your children. Right? And then he gives you some really practical stuff that are kind of timeless. How exactly am I supposed to do that? Well, when you sit in your house, do you guys still sit in your house in 2023? I do, right? So you're talking about when you sit in the house, do you still walk by the way? This, of course, you can extrapolate it like driving as well, right? Um, you probably don't walk your kids to school unless you're fortunate to live right next door, right? So that's still happening. When you lie down, do you guys still lie down? Yes. Do you still rise? So all of these things are sort of unchanging elements of the daily rhythm of human life. And in those places, he gives them the task of teach them and press upon them these words that I have commanded you. And then he goes on. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? So some people... Um, Today, they'll get tattoos with scripture on them. Some people, probably most of you, what do you put on the walls in your home? Some scripture passages, maybe. A lot of people like the Joshua one. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord, right? Go to Hobby Lobby, you can get that in 70,000 different ways, right? Um, or you have a cross on the wall, right? Um, so these things are timeless truths of the rhythm of, of Christian life where God is instructing his people to impress the word upon each other and upon their children. Right? So this is for you and for them. And, you know, in the case of, if then children doesn't, in this case, for the part of our conversation, doesn't just mean like little children who live at home. The next generation. Right? Now that may be your grandchildren or it may be your adult children. Or maybe your children do still live at home. But this truth still applies. So I'll just give you an example in my house. Um, I'm, you know, 34 now. Uh, but if I go home to see my parents, guess what we still do? Devotions. Now, I'm, now as an adult, I'm free to not go. But that's the rhythm of their life that they instilled in us. And so even if I'm not currently doing devotions on my own, if I go home, we're doing devotions, right? And growing up, it wasn't optional, right? Um, if you got up too late and you couldn't shower or brush your teeth or eat your breakfast, you're at devotions. It was just a thing, right? Um, because this is the task given to God's people because the word is the center of our life of faith. So it stands to reason pretty good then that if you're establishing a church through the disciples and Jesus wants that church to be for generations, then the core of what that church is about has to be something permanent, unchanging, and always true. So we have the word. Right? That all kind of makes sense? Try to bring a bunch of stuff together there but this is what is i think really exciting about some of the stuff is when you really dig into things that you've inherited 
that you haven't fully understood when you received them, right? And we're all in that boat. There are still times when I go to a church service at another church and they do something and I'm like, what is that? Why'd they do that? And then I look it up. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Never, never knew that, right? Didn't know that's why I've been doing that for 10 years or why I saw this the first time and why it was even done in a church, right? Um, it's, it's the way that we evaluate whether or not something should be there. Right? And it's the source of our joy for the things that are. So if I want to add something to the service or take something away, what's the first thing I'm going to look at? The word. The word. Right? Even if I have to contradict my pastor. My pastor, you want to add this thing, but where is it in the Bible? Or what purpose does it serve? Now, you might say, well, there's people like to do gospel processionals or processional crosses that doesn't talk about that in the Bible anywhere. True. So how do we evaluate whether that's a worthwhile addition to a church service? It's elevating the importance of the Bible. It's making it obvious you know, that the Bible is central. Sure. Right. So then it falls into the category of something that isn't necessary but can be good. Right. That's how we determine those things. So if someone suggests to me, Pastor, you know, the readings for this week, they're just so long. Gospel reading is like 67 verses. The Old Testament reading is like 35. My kids are going to fall asleep. Or I'm going to fall asleep. Or I'm going to start thinking about, i got to mow the lawn later, and then we got to run to the grocery store, and all these sorts of things. Right? Can't we shorten that up? What's my answer going to be? No. No. Why? Because it's central. It's the thing that is the reason for why I'm here and I have the call that I have. So by definition, I don't have the authority to do that. right? And so it, it's helpful in keeping things grounded in the idea that whose church is this? It's Christ's church. It's his table. It's his font. How do I know that? He's given me his word. And this office that I hold is his office. And so I have to do certain things and I can't do others based on the authority given to that office. Same for all the people sitting in the pews. There are certain things that we are given to do and things we're not given to do based on the authority given to us by God as his people, right? So is it optional for us to sing praises? It is not. The way in which that happens is varied and we can be pretty creative with that. But imagine if we came to church, say there's 80 of us, and no one sings. And let's imagine that I'm a visitor and I've come to that church and I'm sitting there and somebody's playing some music and I look around and everybody's at best just sort of like mumbling along. What is my thought going to be? Hey, what's wrong with this church? Yeah. And you may not even really know why that bugs you, but you know something about that isn't right. Why is that not right? Because we should sing praises. Why should we sing praises? That's why we're praising God. We're there to receive, but we should also praise the Lord. Why are you praising them? Ah, here we go. Right. So we've received the greatest of all gifts in the universe. If you're not supposed to sing when you get those, then what's singing for? Right. Um, and so there's there's so there's all these things that are evaluated, and it always comes back to the word, right? Because even when you get to the sacraments, which we'll do in the fall, and we get to the service of the sacrament, the word is still the center of that, right? Because the sacrament is a specific promise attached to the word. And so what's an element of that service that you just maybe will come to you about where you can see the word present in a permanent way in the service of the sacrament? Yeah. It's even in the title of the little section of that part of the liturgy. Okay. 
the blank of institution. The words of institution, right? Those are said every time there's a communion service in every Christian church across the globe. Because what are we saying? We're saying the words of Jesus in regards to the specific promise he's attached to the sacrament. But without the word, there is no sacrament. So sometimes the word and sacrament ministry title can be a little confusing because it seems like they're two separate categories. They're not. The sacrament is still sourced in the word, but it's just a specific promise attached with the word. Um, Same with baptism. There's always a word component in the baptismal liturgy. You read the, the stuff from the gospel readings about what baptism is, and of course we're commanded to do that in Matthew 28. So, um, so you can see why that is something that is not optional for Christians in worship. So my advice to you is, let's say you move somewhere and you start going to a new church. If they're not reading from the Bible, find a different church. If the only time you hear the scriptures is during a pastor's sermon, he hasn't given you anything straight from God to be expounding on. He's just telling you what he thinks the text says. Now, the sermon may be really good and it may be faithful, but that's a bad long-term plan. So just like when the people of God were scattered, we're kind of in a similar state because who's gone? Who's not walking around and leading us all over the place right now? Jesus, right? He's gone somewhere and we can't follow. Not yet. So what has he given us? We learned about today. The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Let's go to John 14. Yeah. Let's go to John 14. I want to read that because I like the way that it's phrased there. So this, the gospel reading today was the earlier part of this. What time is it? Okay, I just wanted to make sure that clock was correct. Um, and we weren't like 10 minutes over already. Um, okay, so the gospel reading was 15 to 21. We're looking a little after that. Verse 25. So verse 25, Jesus says this. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, so teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The way that's said is very specific. He's going to teach you all things. The full truth of what Jesus came to reveal is going to be taught in the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring to your remembrance the things that I have said. So one of the common objections people have with the Bible, if they're, on, they're non-believers or they're doubting, is how can you trust that what the disciples are saying is really from God? Because this is a witness statement. It's not directly from Jesus. Here's your answer. Because they were given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all the things that Jesus had said. Right? And so we can trust in the witness of the apostles as a result of that. And we can trust in the the explanation and expounding of Paul in the letters and Peter and so forth because it's done in the Spirit. So our job as the church is to to do the will of God in bringing the Spirit-filled stuff. And what is the Spirit-filled stuff? Word and sacrament. Those are why those are the core pieces of Christian worship. Right? It's God's word and his promises. Word and sacrament. And so they become the core pieces that really throughout the entire history and development of Christian worship never change. Right? Now, you have some offshoots of the Reformation that really deviate from this. And that's really the first time that it happens. And there's all kinds of reasons for that differences in, in what they think the scripture says. Some of it's practical, just like we learned that, you know, the processional cross, which maybe you previously just thought of as a high church thing, was just something also that was developed practically. In a room of thousands of people, you need something visible. you got to put it up high, right? 
um, and you needed something to move you from the back to the front in these giant buildings to signal to all the people, because they don't have screens and they don't all have bulletins, right? So how are you gonna know what's coming next, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's the same with the bad stuff. Sometimes that is a, people have practical reasons, right? So some churches, they don't do the communion railing anymore. Why? What are some of the reasons you think? Huh? I can't figure that out. <laughs> well, I know a few, but I want to see what you guys have heard. Time, yeah, time. It takes forever. Imagine if we had 200 people. We'd have to sing like seven communion songs. I'm down for that, but I don't know if everybody else is. Right? Not everybody, what else? Not everybody can walk up there. Not everybody can walk up there. Right? We don't want to make people feel bad that can't go up there. Right? I don't care about that. You come to us. Because I, yeah. So I'll make you feel special because I'll come down and see you. What else? The others. That's the big one. It's a time one. Right? So it's a practical thing. So church has developed like a sort of constantly moving. What's the downside of that, though? I think it breaks down the sense of community in a way. Because we're not all communing together the way that Jesus intended. Yeah. It's not at that table anymore. Yeah, it's not a table anymore. Right? It's like a buffet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right? You're going up and getting your stuff and you're eating and then going back. Um, yeah. Some people might feel that's kind of impersonal. Yeah, it feels impersonal, right? Because you're you're not really interacting, other than just the basic handoff, right? Um, and so there's other ways that you can get around the time constraint, but maybe that's one of the things that is supposed to be happening. Right? Maybe it's supposed to take a while. Maybe it's something you're supposed to pause and think about and have time to meditate on. Which, not just in church, but just in general, our culture is awful at. And there's zero reflective time. I remember I remember learning this when I was doing family and youth ministry at my previous call. And I, was, I started right out of the gates. I came roaring out of the gates with devotions and all this other stuff. And then like about a year and a half in, I realized probably over half the families don't have any structured time together, period. Much less devotions. So I had to start there. Like, that's not good, right? You can't just be going and going and going and going and going and never have time to sit down because then what do you never ask yourself? Am I going in the right direction? Is this a good thing for us to be doing? Is this a good thing for me to be doing? Because if you're always going, you don't have time to really think that stuff through, right? Um, so so that's one of the things that I think is, is a good thing about worship is by its nature, it forces you, one, to not think about yourself, and two, slow down. Take a deep breath. Some of the people that will never stop and reflect and pray do that intentionally because they don't want to. They're scared. Well, it can be scary. Yeah, it can be scary. Because what happens if I think about something as I'm listening to the scripture reading and I become convinced that maybe I need to change something about my life? That's a hassle, especially if it involves more than one person. Then it's even more of a hassle because I have to convince them. And maybe they're not going to believe me and we're going to fight about it. I'll just, I'll just go to the next thing. Right? Um, but eventually that stuff comes to get you, um, as you probably all know. So, um, so the Holy Spirit is, is sort of the, the linchpin gift here in combination with the Word, as John 14 says. It ties all this stuff together. It keeps it constant. And it gives us the trust and the ability to believe in the word. And then we pass that on from generation to generation to generation. That's why, I mean, if you think about it, we've spent a crazy amount of time translating the Bible, making sure that it's true to the the original text. I mean, when they were making copies of the scroll that Ronette was describing at a bar mitzvah, that process is so involved. And it's and it pays off because when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were almost exactly the same. Because if you messed up and a, and a word was off because they had them all counted out and they had all the letters counted out, you had to start over. Because it had to be the word. Right? Um, that's why that, that whenever somebody, whenever there is a regime or a, or a culture that's trying to get rid of Christianity, what do they go after? They make it illegal to have a Bible. 
and make it illegal to say the Bible spoken or read in public. I remember I took the, the youth group at my old church to a, a retreat, and we got to do like a Skype call with a, a, a Ukrainian Lutheran pastor. And he was telling us about what it was like growing up in the Soviet Union, and one of the things that he said was that he never had a Bible, but his grandmother had one, and she had it hidden up in her attic. And so whenever he would go see his grandmother, he would sneak up to the attic with like a scrap of paper and write down a couple of verses so that he could learn them. But if he had been discovered with those, he would have gotten thrown in jail, right? Because, I mean, and this is always kind of a good rule of thumb if you're dealing with like spiritual warfare, is the tactics of the enemy are often more honest than our own because their goal is to destroy the real stuff, right? So it makes sense then that they would go after that because that's the real stuff. If they can get rid of that, the rest is going to fall, right? Um, and so we have to keep that front and center, not only for generations to come, but also for ourselves, right? Um, so any questions about kind of the service of the word stuff or any curiosities you had about that element that I didn't cover today? Great question. Do we get through the whole Bible through the pericopes? No, we do not. So um, we the pericope system is fairly old for the one year. That's the more historic one. Um, I wanted to do the one year this year because we ended the three year rotation, and I've never I've never done it as a pastor. Um, but we use creative worship and all the thematic stuff. They don't do one for the one year. They only do that for the three years. So um, it was going to be a lot more work than I wanted to do. So. We just stuck with the three-year. But the one-year um, develops um, pretty early on after the Catholic Church sort of formalizes. Um, and it develops pretty naturally with the desire. They want people to know a lot of the scriptures. Right? Um, the three-year rotation, which we use, doesn't really come around until Vatican II in the early 60s. Uh, and it was developed further for the same reason. Right? That the Pericope doesn't cover all of the scriptures. Uh, so with a three-year rotation, you can get more scripture in there. You also highlight a different gospel each year. So we're in year A. Um, and so except for like big services is usually the gospel of John, like we're doing now in Easter. But for most of the year, it's Matthew. And next year will be Mark. And then the year after that will be Luke. And then it starts again. Right? Uh, but even with a three-year, it doesn't cover everything. Um, so that's one of the one of the uh, reasons that it's good to do like a Advent or a Lenten series, is you can bring in some elements of Scripture that people haven't often heard. Uh, it's also good while, what like if you do an occasional sermon series, that can be a good thing as well because you can sort of bring some of that in. Um, so I think I don't think the like the Naaman the, the Syrian story comes in in the Pericope, which is a really good one for baptism, right? He's 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 leprous. And um, he goes to see Elisha uh, because he was told that he can cure him of his leprosy. And Elisha doesn't even meet with him. He just sends a guy out to him to say, go and wash in the River Jordan seven times. And it's a great pericope because his reaction is basically like what the rational, post-enlightened, modern reaction would be, which is like, well, sort of. is like he was expecting him to sort of wave his hands over his skin, right? Um, and, his, and then the other part of his reaction is, well, why did I come here? The Jordan River, that's a gross river. There's a lot better rivers where I'm from, right? And then one of his servants kind of hits the nail on the head and says, well, why don't you just listen to the word of the man of God? Because just like that and baptism now, the power doesn't come from the water, whether it's dirty or not. It comes from the word, the word of God, right? Which in that case was spoken through a prophet. Now it's spoken through the son, right? Um, good question, though. Which is also a good reason why you should be reading it on your own, right? Um, you'll, there's a lot of really cool like, hidden nuggets in there. You'll be surprised and probably horrified about some of the things that are in the Bible. It's, not a, it's definitely not a PG book in certain parts. I had, a, I had a professor, a Hebrew professor, who he always said that he thought Ezekiel should come with an like, age requirement because it's a pretty brutal book. But any other questions? Okay. Well, I hope that you've been enjoying learning about some of the standard stuff that we're doing on the daily 
and weekly rhythm of the Christian life. Um, if there's any things that, that I haven't covered already that you would like to know about as far as like f even physical objects upstairs um, or things you see people doing that maybe you've been doing it yourself but you're not really sure why you've been doing it, um, all that kind of stuff, feel free to ask. Uh, I would love to know because then I can include it when I cover stuff in the fall, but I also, I would make you wait. I would answer your question if I knew it. So, um, well, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.